want to start out this morning with a game, a real simple game, and uh, the game is just basically you tell me if it's man-made or if it is God-made. And so let's just start out with this first one image on the screen, sugar. Is that man-made or is that God-made? Oh, come on, guys. Have some confidence here, okay? Have some confidence in what you were taught in elementary school. Man-made, God-made, it is? God-made. Oh, yeah, that sounded like a lot of revelry right there. How about sweet and low, man-made, God-made? Man-made, right? Okay, here we go. Now it's going to get a little harder. Great picture, though. One easy piece, never would buy it, buddy, okay? You can keep it on you. 100% polyester, man-made, God-made? Man-made. We're getting the idea here. Cotton, 100% cotton, man-made, God-made? God-made. Now it's going to get a little bit more difficult. I'm not talking about the stemware. I'm talking about the glass, man-made or God-made? Oh, you go, this is what I heard. That's what I heard. Look, if you look it up, glass is a natural man-made or God-made product, okay? The stemware is man-made. How about plastic? Man-made, okay. You guys get excited about this a little bit, okay? Because we all know that plastic is man-made, right? How about a diamond? A diamond? God-made. How about cubert zirconium? Man-made. How about your wife wouldn't know the difference? No? Not there yet? No. Okay. <clears throat> How about the Ten Commandments? How about grace? God made. You know, we look at the Ten Commandments sometimes and uh, we come up with this idea that these are laws and that maybe laws don't have so much bearing on our life like maybe grace does. And this has been one of my struggles of late as we've been in this, this series in Galatians Live Free because we have talked so much about grace, but we haven't talked much about we haven't talked about the law. And, and my rationale is that if God made the law and God is perfect, isn't the law perfect? So why are we not then held to or bound to the perfect law of God? And when I talk about the law of God, I'm talking about what's sometimes called the law of Moses, sometimes called the law of God. It's foundational to the early parts of the scriptures early on. Um, it's made up of the moral law that would be like the Ten Commandments, ceremonial laws, which are just ways to worship God, interact with God, and judicial laws, which are ways to act and react to one another. There's 613 of those laws that, that God instituted. Now, here's my thinking. God is perfect, and if God is perfect and he authored these laws, then these laws too must also be perfect. So that would mean, that, I mean, this is just my humanistic thinking, that would mean if I keep the perfect law, if I could just memorize the 613 laws, and I could keep the moral laws, the ceremonial laws, and the judicial laws, and I can keep those things and not be a lawbreaker, then I'm a perfect man. And you know the Bible describes the word perfect as the word righteous. You've ever heard that word before? And that word right means that you've done everything right, and I think that is where the problem starts for me, because I haven't done everything right. I'm not righteous. And I know that God has shown me the law so that I would be aware of my sins. That like if I could really live up to those laws that God had enacted that are of perfection, then I would be a perfect person and that's what a perfect person looks like. And knowing that I haven't lived up to that, I have found that God's grace is my greatest hope. I, I used to believe that, uh, that if the good stuff in my life outweighed the bad stuff in my life, then um, that might give me an avenue to God. It might make a way for me to be accepted by God. But that led to a man-made scale. 
That man-made scale really had me determining what was good and what was bad. Like, what is the weight of, uh, what is the weight really of a white lie versus a black lie or an evil lie? What is the weight? Which one weighs more on the scales, right? It leads to kind of like some complex, messy kind of thinking. Like, is robbing a liquor store worse than cheating on your taxes? Like, where does that balance out in the weightiness of bad or the the lightness of what is right. And I've recognized that this idea that there's a scale that God's weighing good and bad is really my idea. It's really my belief. God never mentioned that. And I found out that I don't really, I don't really live up to that because I still have problems in my life. I still have a sin problem. And so I've recognized that God's grace is my greatest hope. I once believed that God would only give me so much grace. You know, like God's grace was limited. You ever believe this? And like maybe there's like a a bank account kind of a thing in heaven, maybe like a grace account. And so God was only dishing out so much grace. And so maybe if I, you know, did some things that were unintentional uh, rather than premeditated, that would take less grace. Like, you know, if I went to the restaurant with a free water cup and filled it up with Coca-Cola, like, you know you're not supposed to do that, right? Okay. So, and, and, and then take it back and drink that. Like, God would say, well, that's only going to take a little bit of grace from your account, Matt. But if, if you, like, premeditatedly cheated on a final exam in school, that's going to take a whole lot more grace. And uh, really, though, that's a man-made, a man-made belief. And that was a belief that at one point I used to have. And uh, that belief, though, left me very uncertain about, like, am I saved or am I not saved? Like how much grace is left for me in the bank account? Like am I gonna get a letter one day that just says insufficient funds, right? You're done, you're cut off, like you've just done too much bad. And so what I've discovered by that belief is I gotta walk away from that man-made idea and I gotta fall back to this God-made idea and that is God's grace is my greatest hope for salvation. I used to once believe that if I tried my hardest to obey God, if I tried my hardest to obey God, especially if I tried to live out the teachings of Jesus and, and just live those out the best I could, then God would be pleased with me and make him happier with me, and he would be more ready and willing to accept me and love me in greater ways. And um, like he would almost say, like, Matt, I know you didn't live up and you didn't really live perfection, but I'm going to give you an A for effort. But that's, that's again, a man-made, a man-made belief. And I've discovered that if my head is separated from my heart, I can still give a performance of what looks right, even though it's not my, my passion. You, you look at me strange, but you do this every day at work, most of you. You're an employee, you follow the rules as an employee, you follow the rules of the management, you follow the rules of corporate environment, but your, your heart's not in it, your, your head is, maybe out of fear or obligation, and I recognize that I can follow God out of fear, I can follow God out of obligation, but my heart doesn't have to be behind it, and I found out that motivation really matters. Motivation matters when it comes to following God because God desires that I love him, not, not have to, not ought to, but God wants me to love him and follow him because I, I want to, and that's the motivation of our love. And I've discovered that if I just had this belief that if I tried harder, that doesn't really work because that, that doesn't work on my, my love for God, and I've had to now just fall back into this place of my, my, my God's greatest God's grace is, is the greatest hope that I've, that I've got for salvation. I imagine that some of you in this room, maybe many of you in this room, have had that same belief. Like you've thought to yourself in some way, like you're not really confident if you, 
have overspent your grace with God. Like, you don't know, is God happy with me? Is he angry with me? You've been tipping the scales and finding out, like, how much good have I done? How much bad have I done? Is there, is, am I going to get a letter one day that says insufficient grace? Uh, it, that doesn't exist in your account anymore. You used it all up. And we've fallen into this idea that we can earn our way to heaven, that we can play a part in our salvation, that God uh, is really looking for something in us or from us so that he'll finally be happy with us. And I think if you ask people, like, what does it take for you to get into heaven? I think most people would say, and I think many of you would even say, well, you, you, you got to be good. You got to be good. And I know that the majority of us would say that because there was a, there was a, a survey that was done some years ago by Lifeway Publishing. And it, it asked Christians specifically, does is there anything that you add to your salvation that God needs from you to be saved? And 71% of Christians said, yes, God needs me in to help be saved, to help be rescued. I need to do something. Like I need to follow a rule. I need to live out a ritual. I need to adhere to a religion, something about that. When the fact is our, our greatest hope is God's grace. You see, the Galatians, they, they, they believe this. This is the book that we're in, this little letter called Galatians. They, they had believed that they needed to add to their salvation. They, had, they believed that they needed to contribute something for God to love them more. And the Galatians believed that, that God needed their help when it came to the forgiveness of their sins. This, this area of Galatia is in the, the area now of eastern Turkey. And what had taken place was the Apostle Paul went out on a missionary journey. He went out and established four churches there. And he won over and witnessed and, and, and won over a group called the Gauls. Now, you may have heard about the Gauls in history. The Gauls were ran off by the Romans in Europe. And they found some security in this area of eastern Turkey. And it was named after them, Galatia, Gauls. And the Gauls were warriors. The Gauls were fighting men. The, Gaul, the Gauls were, were, had known bloodshed and war for centuries of their life. And these are very hard and hardened people. But the Apostle Paul went in and he gave them a message that just liberated them completely. That message was the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am loved and I am accepted by God. Not based on anything you do, but only based that God loves you and God accepts you. Therefore, live for him. Live in awe and honor for him. Now, the Gauls were filled with all sorts of baggage in their past. They had done all sorts of things that they regretted. And they recognized tipping the scales, uh, bad and good, didn't weigh in their favor. They recognized that they probably ran out of grace because, after all, that makes sense, right? I mean, certainly, you don't get a free lunch. You're going to have to pay for something. And then when they heard the life-changing message of Jesus, when they heard the forgiveness that exists in God, when they heard that God loved them and that God accepted them, even though they were hardened, people, that liberated them because they had, they, had, they had recognized every world religion. You know, every world religion teaches us that man has to do something for that deity to love them. Did you know that? Every world religion, every single world religion teaches the opposite of what Christ had taught us, that you have to do something for God to love you. But Christ came and said, you don't have to do anything for God to love you. He already loves you. He already accepts you. Now, do you have the faith to step out on that belief that God loves you and accepts you. And what happens here is that uh, the, the Apostle Paul looked at it and said, look, God's grace is your greatest hope. And they said, yeah, we believe that. But then they, they had some false teachers get involved. And the false teachers came in and they said, no, 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 you, you only have so much grace. 
or God is tipping the scales. And they were leading them to believe something that was man-made and constructed. And Paul is so furious. He's so frustrated because he found that this group who were hardened and, and, and had so much baggage of their past, so much sin, finally left that at the foot of Jesus Christ at the cross there. They handed it over to Jesus and some people came back and said, no, pick up that baggage again. You have to do some things to earn God's love. And Paul's frustrated because they walked away from grace. They walked away from a God-made promise and they fell for a man-made plan. And that led to a ton of problems for him. So I want to get in the book of Galatians, in this letter called, we call it Galatians. It was a letter that Paul wrote to the Gauls in Galatia, uh, and, and we're going to go to chapter 4, and we're going to look at what Paul tells them. He tells them a story that they were familiar with, but many of us have, have probably forgotten about. And so here's the story, uh, the difference between man-made ways and God-made ways. Galatians 4, let's start in verse uh, 21. Paul says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written, so here's the story, that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. We're in verse 23 right now. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of a divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively. The woman represents two covenants, or the women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Remember, uh, the Ten Commandments came through Moses, uh, and God gave him those commandments on Mount Sinai. Verse 25, now Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. Paul's kind of jabbing at the Jews here, and he's saying, look, they're still... They're still not free because they're trying to go for rituals and religion and man-made stuff to get to God. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother. And then he goes on to talk about Isaiah 54, and that's, gonna, that's just going to muck up the waters a little bit if we go there. So let's continue on to verse 28. I want to stay simple for a moment. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the Spirit. It is the same now. But what does Scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. And everyone says together, so what? That's confusing, Paul. It's confusing because it's a story that we don't know very well or maybe don't know at all. And Paul uses the story of Abraham and Sarah and their son Isaac, who was a son that was promised to Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And they were so old that when God told them that they were going to give birth to a child, they laughed at God. They just said, that's impossible. We're just going to laugh at God. You know, there's, there's two things that, that uh, God says, uh, go ahead and... And laugh because I'm going to make a way. There's two things that can happen in your life. Number one is when you say, God, you're going to go with my plan. (laughs) God's going to laugh at that. Or when you tell God the impossibilities that are ahead of you. God's going to laugh at that because nothing is impossible with it. And and they laughed and said, God, that's not a part of our plan. And that's an impossibility. and, And you're going to find out that God has the ultimate last laugh. And then God said, you know, Abraham, Sarah, I know you're old. And I know you can't give birth to a kid. But one day... You're going, to give, you're going to have birth to a son. He's going to be the father of a nation. That nation's Israel. 
And, and you're going to have so many descendants, you can't even count them. It's going like, to be like the number of, of sand on the seashore. At first, they didn't accept what God was telling them. I mean, why would they? They, they knew they couldn't have a child, um, and they thought this was too good to be true. Like, you don't get something for nothing. You can't just get a free lunch. Certainly, God wants something from us. And that turned to, you know what? We've been waiting for months and years now. God hasn't come through with his promise, and so we're just going to add our own plan. And so Sarah concocts this plan, and she tells her husband, Abraham, would you have sex with my maidservant, Hagar, and maybe she's younger than me, she could probably have a kid, and then a child will be born, that will fulfill the promise. No, 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 that's a man-made plan. Are you catching on here what's going on? Man-made plan. And they think, okay, everything's all right, and then they recognize all the problems that came with the child that was born to Hagar, the slave woman named Ishmael. And friends, if you don't know the story of Ishmael, then, then you don't know world history right now, in a sense. Because all the problems that we're having right now in the Middle East, you know where that stems back from? This decision to go with Hagar and Abraham rather than Abraham and Sarah. You see, the Muslims track their, their route to God through, through Ishmael, the slave woman. And they say, see, that's our route to Abraham. That's our route to God. But he wasn't of the promise. He was of a man-made plan. Isaac should have been of the promise. And so they finally come to their senses and say, God, you know, we realize that we have created a problem for ourselves, that man-made plans don't work, so we'll just wait. And then ultimately, a son was born to them. Abraham and Sarah conceived. They give birth to the promised one named Isaac. And you know what the name Isaac means? Laughter. And God says, didn't I have the last laugh? I did. She's 91 years old, and she, has, she gives birth. Abraham's 100 years old, and, and he's, he's a dad to this, this little boy. And God was teaching him to be faithful to him, to trust in the promises, and to do it God's way. And here's Paul's reason for telling the story. He takes this literal story, and he turns it into a figurative thing. turns it into a figurative thing so he can teach the contrast between doing it God's way and doing it our own way. Making your own way or just waiting to do it God's way. Because there was a promise that came when they did it God's way. And there's a promise for you and me when we rely on God rather than our own way. And you're saying, well, what is that promise? Here's the promise. The promise has been since the very beginning of time, since the Garden of Eden, that's promise. The promise is that you can have eternal life with God. That's the promise. You can have eternal life with God. That was the promise since the Garden of Eden. But what wrecked it? Many of you know? Three-letter word, sin, wrecked it. You know what sin is? That's just our disobedience towards God. That's when we're lawbreakers and we don't follow what God has laid out for us. We don't obey by the house rules. We commit uh, spiritual crimes, in a sense. And God said, listen, that's gonna kick you out of the garden. That's gonna stop this relationship. And to get this relationship right, we're gonna have to rely on a promise that I'm gonna give to you. That promise is called grace. That promise is called grace. What's the promise called? The promise is called grace, but sin was on a rampage. Sin has always been on a rampage, ruining God's creation, ruining people's lives. And God said, I'm gonna give you the law now. The law is gonna keep you in the boundaries. The law is gonna teach you how to relate to me. The law is gonna teach you how to relate to others. And so you need this law. Even though you're never going to live perfectly, you're gonna need this law. Because it's gonna tell you how to live. It's gonna keep you out of the ditch. And what many of us have done is we thought that the law, we think that the law is really the way of salvation, but it's not. It's just a way to point out our sins and tell us we don't stack up and we need salvation. And it's just telling us we've got a problem. And Jesus, 
He's the grace. He's the promised one. Like Isaac was the promised one. Jesus now has become the promised one for you and I. Jesus is the way to eternal life. And the law was created to show us our sins. And Jesus was born to us to forgive us of our sins. You see, it's only Jesus that saves. Nothing else. You're not needed in the equation. You already have the sins that are needed. You need His salvation. That's part of the equation. And we all have that. And Jesus says, you come to me and I'll save you from your sins. I'll forgive you for your sins. I'll change your life dramatically, radically, if you allow me to. You know, Jesus told it like this. He had said to a group of people that were wondering, like, can we make our way, our own way, our man-made way, or do we need God's way? And Jesus said, no, I am the way. Like, you're not going to get to God in any other form by being good. That's not going to get you there. By, by just living out Jesus' teachings, that's not going to get you there. No, Jesus says, I am the way. I'm the truth and I'm life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's one way to God, and that's through Jesus. Friend, God's grace is our greatest hope. His name is Jesus. God's grace is our greatest hope, and it's, his name is Jesus. And it's not man-made. It's God made, and that's the promise. And, and Paul's saying, would you just adhere to the promise? Quit trying to, to work your own plan to get to God. Just do it God's way. And here's the problem, because if I were to ask you guys in this room, the majority, how do you get to heaven? The majority, you're still going to say, you just be good, right? Human effort. Make your own way. But Jesus' stories contradict that every single time throughout the scriptures. They contradict your answer every single time. Like, let me give you one of the stories. Jesus brings up to us that God's grace is our greatest hope through a story that you're familiar with, which we've taken away from this story, the moral of, be good to your neighbor. But for, for, for centuries before our teaching on that, theologians had taught it a little differently. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. We, we've taught it as, be good to your neighbor, but for centuries, theologians had taught it differently. They've taught about how important it is that we rely on God's grace as we travel in this world. Let me tell you this story as it would have been taught about 500 years ago. A religious man made his own way and traveled down the path of life, but he was beat up and hurt and became helpless and hopeless about his situation. And as he laid there on the side of the road of life, a priest came by, and he thought, a priest? This is the perfect person to help me out because the priest represents the law. He's going to do everything God tells him to do, everything the law tells him how to relate to me. He's going to be the help. But what happens? Well, the story tells us that the priest passes the man by. Now, theologians would have pointed out about 500 years ago that that priest represents the law, and the law was helpless to bring anybody salvation. The law was helpless or, or, or hopeless to bring the man any kind of hope. It wasn't going to happen for him just based on the law. The law wasn't going to make the man whole again. So he lays by the side of the road, and who's there? A Levite. A Levi, you go, I don't know what a Levite is. Is he a guy who wears jeans, Levi's a lot? No, he's not, okay? A Levite is a guy that worked in the temple, and he proclaimed God. He was like a preacher, and he, he just made sure that everybody was aware that God was still existent and present as people would forget about God. He said, certainly this guy will help me. But no, the Levite didn't help. The Levite just passed on by and left the man there wounded and helpless on the side of the road of life. And the theologians would say, that Levite, that guy represents the prophets of God that all came before Jesus Christ and told us, told us, oh, there, you have a problem. You're wounded on the side of the road. But the promised one is coming. And then who falls next down the, the, the pathway? A, a Samaritan, right? 
a Samaritan passes by. And that Samaritan, of, of all the people that have passed already, the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan was the most unlikely source for this man's salvation. He was the most unlikely source for this man's salvation, yet it was the Samaritan who picked up this man who was hopeless, helpless, and hurt by life, picked him up, and he carried him on his own energy and saddled him on his own donkey and took him to the nearest hotel and said, whatever it takes for this guy to be healed up is on me. And he makes sure that that guy's healed up and taken care of, free of charge. And the man rescues the hurt, hopeless, and helpless man for free. And the Samaritan was the way of salvation for this dying man. And the Samaritan, you know who the, what the Samaritan represented in this story? Grace. Grace. The law can't save you. The law will pass you by. The prophets couldn't save you. They could just tell you about the grace that was coming. Only grace can save you. Friend, our greatest hope is God's grace. God's grace is your greatest hope. And it came in the most unlikely of sources. It came through Jesus Christ, who you say, well, wasn't he just a man? But he was the man God. He was part of God's promise all along. He wasn't some kind of man-made creation. He is God-made. And he is our greatest hope for salvation. And there's a promise that God has waiting for you. Here's the promise that God has waiting for you. You can have eternal life with a perfect God. You don't have to worry about your sin anymore. You can be accepted and loved by God. As a matter of fact, you're already accepted and loved by God. That promise is for you. Now you just need to step out and accept that. You need to accept that God's grace is your greatest hope for your salvation. Not your effort, not your own man-made plan, but God's made promise for you through Jesus. And I'm telling you this because you're powerless right now. Like you're powerless to do anything about your sin problem. You're powerless to save yourself. You're powerless to, to connect with a God that is perfect. You wanna know what? Because we're not perfect. You and I are powerless in this. And so our greatest hope is God's grace right now because you can't get there under your own plan. You can't get there under your own power. Sin has removed those kinds of things. And God sent us Jesus, his only son, to fulfill a promise. And you're probably sitting there going, okay, well, how, do you, how do you receive the promise? Well, John chapter 1, verse 17 tells it to us like this. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. How do you receive grace and truth? Through Jesus Christ. How do you receive salvation? Through Jesus Christ. How do you receive God-made grace? Through Jesus Christ, God himself. How do you receive the promise? Placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You know what faith is? Faith is when you step out on the belief that God loves you and accepts you. You know what faith is? Faith is when you step out in belief that God loves you and accepts you. It's one thing to believe that, my friend. It's another thing to step out and to live your life that way. And it's very freeing when you recognize, I don't have to earn God's love. Uh, I don't have to be so good that my good outweighs my bad. I, I know God loves me and he accepts me. Therefore, now I'm gonna live for him. God's grace is our greatest hope. Listen how God tells it to us in Ephesians. He says, for it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. You need the faith to be saved. Grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. Like, we're not working for this here. Not by works. Why? Because we don't get to boast in it. This is something God gets to boast about. See what I did for my kids? I love them. And I accepted them. And now they're, they're believing that. 
And now they're having faith and they're stepping out on that belief and they're living life now knowing I love and accept them. They're not trying to live life with man-made efforts anymore. They're not trying to institute their own plan. They're just hinged on the promise now. They're living in the promise that they're saved, that they're loved, that they're accepted in God. They've, they believe that and now they're walking in faith. They're, they're living this way. You gotta know this, that God sees you as you are. God accepts you as you are. God loves you as you are. But by his grace, God does not want to leave you as you are. He wants to change you through Jesus Christ. God's grace is your greatest hope for salvation. And there is more grace in God than there is sin in your life. There is more grace in God than there is sin of your past, sin of your present, and any sin you can commit in your future. And you just need to step out and accept. God loves me and God accepts me and I'll live for him. You know how the one who lives for him you know how they live? They live in awe and honor. Catch those two words. They live in awe and honor of what God has done for them. That's how you live for him. God loves me, God accepts me. I don't deserve it, right? I don't deserve it. I've been trying to earn my way to heaven for a long time. Now I'm gonna live in awe and honor. I can relax. I can relax and I can rest in Christ that he loves me, he accepts me. I believe that and now I'm living my life that way. I'm living in awe and honor, awe and honor. You know, Jesus tells a story about two sons. It's a story that we don't always talk about very often. He, the father goes to the two sons and they says, hey, I need you to work in the fields today. I, I need your help. And one of the sons says, dad, not a chance. I'm playing Xbox all day long. Don't count on me. Not gonna happen. The new Fortnite update is on. Not gonna happen today, okay? Don't count me in on this one. Goes to the next son. Son, I'm gonna need your help in the, the fields. Uh, the the crop's ready in the vineyard. The son says, absolutely, Dad, you can count on me. I'll be right there at 7 o'clock sharp. Work starts. The one who said he would be there at 7 o'clock never shows. The one who said, Dad, no way, I'm playing Xbox all day, decides to show up anyway. And says, Dad, here, I'm, I'm here to work. Now, which one was the better son to the father? Which one was the better son to the father? The one that gave the dad lip service or the one that fell in obedience and said, okay, I love my dad, I'm gonna do this. The first one, wasn't it? The one who originally said, dad, don't count on me for this, but showed up anyway. You know what Jesus teaches us in that? Faith is more than just lip service. Faith is a step of action. State, faith says, I believe this and now I'm gonna make a move on this. Faith is visual belief. Faith is an action. It's not just what you say, it's what you, you do. And that's the awe part of living in grace. I live in awe. Why should I live in awe? Because I don't deserve God's grace. I'm gonna be in awe of that. I know myself. I know my stupidity. I've been faced with the law. I'm not perfect. I've weighed out my sins on the scale. I know some bad stuff that I've done. I know that my grace account should be empty by now. I am in awe that God sees a wreck like this and says, no, nah, we're good, we're square. I love you, you're my kid. I love you and accept you. you. You believe that Jesus has rescued you and now you're living in faith by that? Just live in awe, Matt, live in awe. And that's why I choose to obey. Out of love, because I'm living in awe. And live in honor. How do you live in honor? Well, you, you look at God and you say, God, I'm honored that you would call me your kid, your son, and I'm not going to use my grace as a license to sin. I'm going to use your grace as a liberty to live for you and honor you with that grace. Now, here's, here's my thing. I, I don't want anybody in this room to wait another moment. Not another moment. 
without stepping out on faith. A lot of you in this room, you believe that you need God's grace. You know it. You, you stacked up all your sins and your good and your bad. You've done all the beliefs that I've ran through and, and now you know you need, you need God. You know that, but you haven't taken a step of faith. You haven't made it an action. Let me tell you your first steps of faith are when we stand in here a minute, is coming right down here and meeting me and heading to this baptistry. That's your first steps. You know what your next step of faith is? Getting into the baptistry and being lowered into it and saying, God, no longer me, but you. I'm in awe of honor. I'm going to live in awe and honor from here on out, and I need your spirit to do it. I'm going to live in awe and honor. And that faith comes when we accept Jesus Christ, the promised one to us, and we say, I give up on the man-made plans that I've created on how to get to you, God, and we just rejoice and relax and rest in the promise of Jesus Christ that God loves us and God accepts us. And some of you are here today like that first son, and you've said to yourself, I'm going to go to church because my wife wants me to come to church. I'm going to go to church because my girlfriend asked me to come. But you know what? I ain't going to do anything with it. I'm just going to sit, sit back. I'm not going to give my life to Christ today. Some of you are sitting here right now saying, I'm not going to give my life to Christ today. I'm just not going to do it. But now you're feeling this like want and willingness. Like that first son who says, Dad, you don't count on me. And now you're saying, wait a minute, I'm going to find myself in the vineyard in obedience Some of you are landing there right now. Let's do this today. And others of you, you're like the older son. You said, Dad, you can count on me. You can count on me. I'll do anything to the ends of the earth, God. You can count on me. And you're just not showing up. You're just not doing it. The faith isn't there. The belief is, but not the faith. And you're not making steps of obedience. You're not challenging yourself. You're not falling in line with God's word. You know what you need to do today? You need to repent. You just need to, as we stand and sing, maybe you stop singing and you say, God, would you, I know you love me and I know you accept me. I I just today want to live for you. I want to rededicate my life to you. But if you haven't given your life over to Jesus, your steps of faith are right here to this baptistry. And to say, God, I want to live now in your promise rather than my plans. And I want to rest and I want to be rescued in the name of Jesus Christ. Will you stand with me and let's pray together. Father, I know that there are those in this room that want to do right by you. And they have a belief, but they haven't taken a step of faith. I pray that you will lead them to that. And they won't know how they made that first step. They just know they need to make it. And they will humble themselves and come to you. Father, I'm thankful for this moment where we get to teach your word. And I pray that it was applied right to the people here today. Pray, Father, that you do any of the cleanup that needs to be done of the mess I've made today. And that you work in the hearts of these folks. And you show them that you love them and you accept them. I know there's some that believe that, but they need to step out in faith and live that way. Pray that they make that commitment today in the name of Jesus.